to now. We praise your holy name. We acknowledge that you are our God. That you are the only God, the true God, righteous and holy and just and pure in all that you do. And you have given us your word, the repository of your truth. We ask now that you would grant us understanding into your word. And I ask, Lord, for the grace and unction of your spirit, that I might preach your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you were to ask any pastor how many times someone, whether in, their, whether in his parish or outside of the church, has asked them a question that goes something like this, or made a statement, rather. I'm a little bit angry at God because he hasn't answered my prayers. It's a fairly common thing for a pastor to hear. God's silent. God's deaf. People won't actually say that, but that is what they're asserting. God hasn't answered my prayers. He's not hearing what I'm asking of him. And when the pastor opens up 1 John 5 and shows in this passage, they become a little bit baffled. Because what does John say? I'm going to look at the first two verses of um, the passage I read. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. It's a seemingly perplexing passage at first. Because it seems almost... To make God a cosmic ATM machine. We're going to ask him for anything as long as it's according to his will and we will receive it. Have you ever asked for anything that was contrary to God's will? Probably. Particularly when you're younger, you might ask for things or desire things that as you grow up and look, you say, wow, I wonder why I really wanted that. Many a person as they grow older realize that when God said no to a certain request that he actually knew what he was doing. I've known people have said, I thank God that he said no to my request that he would bring me this girl or that, that, that boy because I'm very happy in my marriage now and wow, if I had married her, who knows what kind of crazy episodes would have entered in my life. I remember when I first got saved, I was going to a church that preached what we call the health and wealth gospel. Name it, claim it, and frame it. And as a 23-year-old man, I was very interested in that theology. It was very attractive to me. Uh, because I like, I like money. And I wanted a lot of things. So I began, this is in the summer of 1985, I actually began to pray that God would somehow allow me to become center fielder for the New York Yankees. That never happened. I was never very good at baseball to begin with. I wasn't. My brother was. Two of my brothers were. That wasn't my sport. One year I could hit, one year I could field, but I could never put the two together. I didn't become center fielder for the Yankees. I've also prayed for crazy things like a $10,000 Rolex watch. God said no to that one as well. And if you look back on your prayer life, you'll realize that 
We utter many strange and silly things in the ears of God, and He does answer our prayers, and He says, No. It's that old show, Father Knows Best. We have to trust that Father actually does know best for us. That He gives us the things that we need. Now, I'm not going to dodge around this passage. This passage opens up a lot of questions. But it asserts a number of things that we can gain very, very quickly. First, we have to realize that prayer is a privilege that Christians possess. Look at verse 12, a few, a few verses earlier. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Prayer, as it's properly defined, is the domain of a Christian and is the domain of a Christian church. Millions, billions maybe, of Muslims each day, wherever they are, grab a little carpet. And we actually should admire them for their diligence in this. They'll do it even if they're working McDonald's. And they'll throw that mat on the ground. And we'll get down on their knees and they'll begin to speak very loudly in Arabic to Allah as they bow down towards Mecca. God does not hear their prayers. He does not. They are praying to a false god. Now, when I say that God does not hear their prayers, it does not mean that God does not know that they are praying. It is not that God cannot hear, even though He does not have any ears. God knows everything at all times. He knows what those people are going to say before they say it. When we say that God does not hear their prayers, what that means is He is not heeding them. He is not heeding them. Now that's a controversial statement to make in our day and age because um, we live in one big rainbow where all the colors bleed into one and everything is equal. Well, that's very illogical because if Christians pray for A and Muslims pray for B, um, and they're praying for contradictory things. For instance, we might pray, and we should pray, that the scourge of Islam would be crushed in the Middle East. It's doing an incredible amount of harm at the moment, if you haven't looked at the news. But they're praying that they'll have further victories. The mask is coming off. It's not a, it is not a religion of peace. They are trying to establish a caliphate, an Islamic government, where you can forget about it, ladies. You can forget about having your skirt measured because you're going to have a very, very, very strict dress code. Some places you might not even leave your house. Won't be allowed. Now they're praying for success. We are praying for their submission to Christ. God cannot answer both those prayers at the same time. God is not bound by the rules of logic, but the rules of logic reveal how he thinks. A is A, B is B, never the twain shall they meet at the same time in the same place. You might know that there was a vibrant Christian community in what we now call Iraq for 
a long time. I love talking about this church. I think I told the elders once, I really love it that the church was founded in 1799 and not 1800. There's something about being able to say 17 that just makes me feel good. It's only one year difference, but 1799 just has, um, has some oomph to it that not many of my fellow pastors can say. Well, the church in Iraq was founded a lot earlier than 1799. More like 099. Long, long time ago. There was a vibrant Christian community in Iraq. They're not there anymore. They've left. They've been driven out. The ones that have come back have had to either pay a tax or have renounced Christ. Or die. Because that's the gospel according to Islam. Become a Muslim or die. Maybe we'll let you pay a tax for a while, but eventually we will lop off your head. So is God hearing the prayers of those people? No. Because of what verse 12 says, He who has the Son has life. They do not have the Son. They do, not, they do acknowledge that Christ is the Son of God, but they do not acknowledge Him as the Messiah. They do not acknowledge that He died. They acknowledge Him as a great prophet, which is good, but He's much more than a prophet. He is the eternal Son of God, who became Jesus of Nazareth and died on the cross for the sins of His people. They do not believe that. Therefore, they do not have life. Therefore, they are not in His kingdom. Therefore, the Father does not hear them. And that should bring great comfort to our souls because they do not want you to live the way you are living presently. If they had their way, all the things that we think are freedoms would be squashed in a split second. We wouldn't have to worry about drunk drivers on the road. You don't have to worry about drunk drivers in an Islamic country because you can't have alcohol. But they're really big into curfews, public beheadings and stonings, things of that nature. You should be thankful that prayer is the purview of a Christian and the Christian church. Because we have the Word of God, the complete Word of God, and we can understand what He wants us to do. This is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The privilege that we have is actually having what I call a divine audience. Just the fact that God would bother to listen to your words is, should be an answer to your prayers. Now, one of the things that's um, it's almost a cliche uh, in, in marital situations, and these are generalities, not all, you know, they say men don't like to ask for directions. That's patently false. As soon as I think I'm lost, I stop. I start asking directions. I don't have that problem. I'm lost. Tell me where to go. I want to know. But, a lot of ladies seem to say that their husbands want to solve all their problems. When a lot of times, the lady of the house just wants to be able to talk. 
just wants to be able to have the husband sit there and listen. And most men find that somewhat difficult. Most men like to say, okay, you've said X, Y, and Z. I've got the solution to X, Y, Z, and A, B, and C while you were talking. I figured it all out. And then the man will offer these well-meaning and well-intended and possibly correct instructions and communication process breaks down even further. The lady says, I just wanted him to listen. Can't he just listen? Well, it's going to be a struggle for a lot of guys. We're kind of wired to fix things. When we think of our relationship with God, we should be comforted just by the fact that He's there and that He's listening. Think of how sad it is, tragic, to be an idol worshiper, to bow down to a, an allegedly sacred tree or a, or, or a statue and to have to utter your prayers to that statue. A dead thing made of marble. No matter how beautiful it is, it's not alive. We pray to a living God. That in itself should be one of our requests. Because you see, if you can think for a moment... The status of an unbeliever who is praying to this God or that God or gods and is living a life of terror that they've traveled five miles outside of their village and now they are dealing with a different geographical God that they have to now worry about what is going to happen because they're away from their tribal God, their geographical God. Their prayer should be Can you just hear me? Can you please just listen to my words? We have that privilege every waking moment of our life. So I'd like to ask you, I'm not going to ask for a sign of hands, but how much praying did you actually do this week? If you were to get out a pen and paper and list... I'm just going to talk about leisure activities here now because you have to go to work. If you were to list the hours that you spent in what we would consider leisure activities, which are okay, and list the amount of minutes, I'm just taking a guess here, that you actually spent just talking to God, which list do you think would be longer for, now let's just be honest, all of us, The leisure pursuits. I mean, really, if you watch four hours of TV a week, which is pretty low, and you were to honestly assess how many minutes you prayed to God, I'm not sure if many of us could say 40 minutes to cover it. Sadly, a lot of Christians, maybe four minutes would cover it through the whole week. Counting a quick prayer before a meal. Maybe a prayer in the morning, please keep me safe. And maybe a a, a prayer at night. Maybe. Why would we deny ourselves the privilege of speaking with God when He's always there? Myself included. It's a befuddlement. 
it stems to lack of faith. I mean, if we really, truly believed that he was there and hearing us, I think we would talk to him more. You could go to a zillion churches throughout the world, particularly here in America, and you would find very little prayer in them. The way our liturgy is constructed, you get to pray a lot. You say the Lord's Prayer, you sing the Gloria Patri, you sing the hymns, our prayers, set to music. The Apostles' Creed, in a very real way, is a prayer. You're professing, you're confessing what you believe. You have a, a prayer of confession, the psalm that we read out loud, the psalms are prayers. In a lot of churches, you go in, you sing a hymn, you sit down, watch, a, watch an extravaganza, put some money in a plate, hear a lecture, an entertaining lecture, sing another song and leave. There's no prayer involved. There's somebody else praying for you up, up front. You're the people of God. You should be able to pray during a worship service. Out loud, together. Prayer is a great privilege. So why don't we take advantage of it? There's a lot of reasons. Each of us has to ask ourselves why. I promise you that it will whittle down to either A, not thinking about it, or two, not believing. Having a lack of faith. Do you believe what these verses say? And we know that He hears us, whatever we ask. And we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Now, there's a condition in here. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You have to pray according to God's will. Most of us will say, well, sure, that's logical. You're rather foolish to pray that a bank robbery goes well, because bank robbery is against God's will. So if a bank robber says, Lord, please help me to, you know, raid Fort Knox and get away with it, it's time to go to the funny farm because those prayers are just there. They're just crazy. But now let me ask you something. Where do you actually find God's will? In the Bible. So now we come into another issue. If we were to list our leisure activities and the amount of minutes that we actually spend reading or thinking about God's Word, you see, it's very difficult to know God's will if you're not listening to Him speaking to you. The Bible is where God speaks to you. The Bible is where God speaks to His people. Prayer is where we speak to Him. It is a dialogue. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Now you see, if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, then the desires of your heart over time will themselves be transformed. I still think being center fielder for the Yankee would be a really neat job. You make a lot of money, you get to wear a cool uniform, um, you probably don't have to get stopped at airports because you're flying on a private jet, and you make a lot of money, and it just looks like a lot of fun. but I don't want to be center fielder for the Yankees anymore. You're all going to be real mad at me, but I was young, really young. I wanted to be a middle linebacker for the Oakland Raiders. I know they're not too... Yeah, I see... Boy, I see diamonds in eyes here. The Raiders? 
well, yeah. You know, the Giants and the Jets were pretty lousy when I was a boy, and the Raiders were always on TV, and they had those black and silver uniforms. It looked tough. I know they played the Steelers a lot. Forgive me for that transgression. Plus, they played on grass, not artificial turf. Well, artificial turf just looked very, very painful. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we spend time with the Lord in His Word, our desires, our minds will be transformed. That's why Paul says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You, as a Christian, actually have the possibility of thinking God's thoughts after Him. There are many Christians who say, I'm so confused. Clear thinking is a sign of a mature Christian. God has not given us the spirit of fear, the spirit of love and power and a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 Sound mind. You have a sound mind whether you know it or not. You have a spirit of power and a spirit of love whether you know it or acknowledge it or not. It is up to us to believe that text and walk in the power of that text. You can think clearly about everything. God is not cloudy on any subject. Now that does not mean that you don't have to study for your exams, kids. It does not mean that we will all have the same mental facility for every subject. But it means when it comes to moral issues, the things that truly matter, because nobody goes to hell for not knowing how to do trigonometry. Okay? It's not a requirement, thou shalt do trigonometry. But when it comes to making moral decisions, you can actually know what to do in every circumstance, in every situation. If not, then you're believing in a God that is not in control. So the key is to ask for things according to God's will. But now it gets, this is where it gets really, really tricky. Because sometimes we ask things that are seemingly in accord with God's will. And he answers them with a big, fat no. We can understand why praying for a bank robbery to be successful would be answered with a big, fat no. But what if you ask that your marriage be strengthened? You would think that God wants healthy, strong marriages, and He does. And that request doesn't happen, abracadabra. Now this is where people get confused. And what's interesting is that I looked at dozens of commentaries, and not a single one, not even Calvin, talked about this. I said, well, this is the real issue. Everybody knows you have to ask for things according to God's will, but what happens when I ask God? I know that you've done this, God. Please, would you deliver me from this sin? Please, I'm begging you. And he doesn't. You struggle with it for another 15 years. Well, technically speaking, if you end the sin in 16 years, he has answered it. He just took his time. Here's why. There's a passage in James that says that we can't ask for things with a double mind. A double-minded man, James says, is unstable in all his ways. Here's the sad and really terrifying truth. 
that very often a Christian will ask for something that is good and great and godly and that is in accord with God's will. But they really don't want it. They don't. God, please deliver me from this addiction. No. Lord, this is against your will. Please deliver me. No. Why? Because God knows our hearts. And you want those drugs more than you want the repentance. It really is just that simple. You see, Paul tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. To the old death, the old word. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Kill, put to death. Jesus says similar things that are not to be taken literally. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, cut it out. You're not supposed to do that. That's against the sixth commandment. You can't gouge out your eyes. Believe it or not, there's been silly people throughout church history who have done that. It's a parable. It's telling you that if you quit sinning, it is going to hurt. It is not going to be fun. That's why I keep telling you children, don't start a sin. It's so much easier to not start a sin than to try and quit one 20 years down the road. Much easier. Much more pleasant. Ask adults around you if it's fun trying to quit a sin. It is brutally painful. And what's, what's ironic, what's bitterly ironic, is the more heinous the sin is, the more gross the sin is, the more damaging the sin is, the, the more tantalizing it is. And the more addictive it is. And what it comes down to is we want to be delivered from the sin, but we do not want to pay the price of mortifying the sin. Have you broken a bad habit? Hopefully you have. Was it easy? Was it fun? Was it a pleasant experience? Those of you who have tried to lose weight, is that fun? Saying no to goodies? When everybody's eating in front of you, gorging on steaks, and you say, okay, I'll just have a little bit of dry tuna. Not fun. Mm, not fun at all. Trying to quit physical addictions or mental addictions. They're very difficult. They're painful. They hurt. That's why we give in. And this draws us to the foot of the cross because the Christ never developed a bad sin. He never sinned and he never gave in. What we need to be asking is for our hearts to be so transformed that we truly desire what God wants. And Paul tells us in Thessalonians that God's will for our life is our sanctification. That means our purification. He wants us to live such pure lives mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually that when we walk into a room, people see light shining off us. Guess what? That doesn't happen overnight, and it will cost you a great deal of time. It will cost you a great deal of effort. And when you put to death the deeds of the flesh, it will be very, very, very painful. Becoming a mature Christian is a lifelong process and it hurts. It will bring you sleepless nights. It will cause you to weep when you see evil around you. 
it will cause conflict amongst the members of your own family. As Jesus said, you think I came to bring peace? I didn't come to bring peace. You're misunderstood, kids. I came to bring a sword. From now on, a father will be against his son, and a son-in-law will be against his mother-in-law, etc., etc., etc. Why? Because the word of God is sharp, and it pierces, and it cuts as deep as bone, as marrow, and it separates soul from spirit. Surgery is necessary, but it's rarely painless. There's a reason why they give you anesthetic. Because it hurts. Even minor surgery isn't fun. Comparatively speaking, going to the dentist for a cavity is minor surgery. I don't know about you, but I load up on that Novocaine. I do not want to feel that drill in my tooth. Numb me up. I need another shot. Anesthetic. When it comes to killing sin, there is no anesthetic. That's why we don't get what we want. Because we ask for the wrong things. Or we ask for the right things with the wrong motives. Or we ask for the right things without really believing that God's going to do it. I don't think God's really going to do this for me. And we need to repent of that. See, that's a skewed view of our Heavenly Father. Jesus says, if, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, would you, if they ask for bread, would you give them a snake? No. He says, well then, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to His children who ask for them? But we have to ask according to His will. And our will has to be transformed. Our wills have to be transformed to be aligned with His will. When that happens, and we become ready, willing, and able to pay the price, our price for our sanctification. You can't pay for your justification. Christ died for your sins. You have nothing to do with that. Your sanctification, your growth and maturity, that's a 50-50 proposition. It would be nice if it was just like justification. If God did all the work, that would be fantastic. Get saved, bam. Perfect morality. Oh, it would be great. Sorry, it's not reality. We have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And when we do that, then we will become more like Christ. Our minds will become even more clear. And we will be able to pray in the Spirit according to God's will. Now you're probably kind of discouraged at the moment. So let me just leave with a couple of words of encouragement. Hey, you have help in this endeavor because you don't know how to pray. Paul tells us that. Romans 8, go home and read it. A lot of it's hard to understand, but one part is really fun to understand. That the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words because we know not how we should pray. Number one, if you're finding your prayer life stifled, Immature, not working, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. Number two, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 2. Jesus Christ, your Savior, your great high priest, always lives to make intercession for the saints. He is always available for a discussion. He is a sympathetic high priest, a compassionate high priest, because he knows about your struggles more deeply than you do. 
because he was faced with the same temptations and he always said no. So if you're a little discouraged in your prayer life, you have help. The Son of God and the Spirit of God are praying for you constantly. And hopefully, your friends and family of the faith are praying for you as well. I say that hopefully. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of prayer. And we do ask that you would help us to improve. Not only in the amount of time that we pray, but in the quality of our prayers. That prayer would actually become part and parcel of our lives and not something that is just added on to them. In Christ's name, Amen.